Welcome to PCOM Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein, and today we're talking with Dr. Terry Erbacher, Clinical Associate Professor of School Psychology, whose work focuses on various aspects of suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention response, and the traumatic impact this loss has on those left behind. Dr. Erbacher is a trainer for the NASP's PREPARE model of crisis prevention, intervention, and recovery in schools, and is an American Association of Suicidology Certified School Suicide Prevention Specialist and a Certified Grief and Traumatic Loss Specialist. She is frequently asked to consult and respond to local school districts in the aftermath of a critical incident and is the co-author of Suicide in Schools, a Practitioner's Guide to Multi-Level Prevention, Assessment, Intervention, and Postvention. Welcome, Dr. Erbacher. Well, Dr. Feldstein, thank you so much for having me. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about such an important topic and appreciate your willingness to discuss it. Great. In light of teens and adolescents starting another school year, what are some signs parents should look for that may indicate their child may be at risk for suicide or self-harm? Yeah, that's a great question. As we start the school year, there's a lot of signs that a child might be at risk. Most importantly, for a caregiver to look at any changes, right? Any changes of behavior, any changes of social groups. So you think about over the summer, you know, last year, seventh grade, here's the group I was hanging out with. But over the summer, these guys, you know, were together at camp, whatever happened. Now they are tighter in a tighter friendship group, and I'm not really feeling a part of it. So I'm isolated. When parents see that isolation, that's one of the biggest warning signs out there. But any other changes of behavior, you feel like your child doesn't care about schoolwork in the same way. The transition to this school year looks different than years past. They're not wanting to go to school. They're not eating, sleeping, either not sleeping at all or wanting to sleep all the time. Any of those real changes. They're not liking their teachers. Their mood is just negative all the time. And I will get parents sometimes saying, I thought that was just adolescence, you know, they're just in a bad mood. But really differentiating that, you know, if they're just in a bad mood, which is not usually 24-7, typical pattern of behavior, sure, adolescence can be, um, have a label, present with a labile mood where it kind of alternates. But if they're just feeling down in the dumps, feeling sad and depressed all the time, um, again, not wanting to activate or get up and do things they used to enjoy doing, that could definitely be cause for concern. As parents become mindful of their child's mental health challenges, what are some things they can do to support their child? That's a great question. Um, open up those lines of conversation. Be as open as parents can be with their child. Talk about that friend group. Kids might be itching to talk about it, um, but they're not often going to be the first ones to bring it up. And there's a myth out there that kids won't talk to parents about these deep feelings. But that is a myth. They often want us to ask the question first because they think we as the adults don't want to talk about it. But when we do open up that door, kids will talk. Not always the first time because they don't want to be a burden sometimes, but keep asking. And over time, they'll see that we really do care. We really do want to talk about it. I just, I have to bring up social media here, you know, it's huge and we have to consider that. Be proactive with your child's social media. Really look at what sites they're on. You should have their you know, passwords to be able to get onto the sites and see what they're doing, what kind of conversations they're having online, um, what they're But posting. mom, that's my private business. <laughs> I love it, exactly. And they're going to say that, and we're not there to intrude. But again, if we open up that line of conversation, that it's not just about protecting you, 
but there's perpetrators out there, right? And we want to make sure that what's going on, there's nobody who might be taking advantage of you. And we want it on both ends to make sure you're safe. How can schools play a role in identifying students at risk for suicide or self-harm? That's a great question. And similarly, a lot of schools, you know, think we don't want to open up Pandora's box, so to speak, but we have to, right? We have to ask those questions. Many times kids spend more time on our school property than they do at home, especially if they're involved in activities and sports. They're there a huge percentage of their day. We as school staff members really have to be proactive in asking those questions. Act 71, um, which was instituted in 2015, and I was involved in helping write that law and push that through, um, requires school staff to be aware of the warning signs of suicide, which is great, and how to refer students. So they're our front line. You know, school teachers are the front line. They see the kids every day. So they're the ones who are going to be the first to see those changes of behavior. They can then refer that child to the school's counselor school psychologists, mental health staff, for further evaluation and follow-up to see what's going on. In our book, Suicide in Schools, we do have a bunch of forms for free that schools can use that come with the book that really not only screen for suicide risk, but also a comprehensive suicide risk assessment, as well as a suicide monitoring tool. A lot of what schools report is that they might assess the child, whether they're hospitalized or not, they come back to school and then fall through the cracks, and we don't see them again till the next crisis situation. So how can we kind of prevent that and, and have a way to monitor them over time? What would you like physicians, especially primary care physicians and pediatricians, to know about treating an adolescent or teen as it relates to potential risk of suicide or self-harm? Yeah, just encouraging teens and adolescents to talk about it and for physicians, pediatricians to screen for that, to ask the questions if they've been feeling sad, if they've been having anxiety, have they ever engaged in self-harm um, or non-suicidal self-injury, and have they ever had a suicide attempt? Do they have suicidal thoughts? Are they thinking about suicide? And just asking those kinds of questions. What's your advice when physicians see teens and adolescents when the parents want to be in the room, in the examining room. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times, teens don't want to open up about these issues in front of their parents. Mm -hmm. So do you encourage physicians to say, mom, it's usually mom, not to exclude dads, but you know, this is, you know, can I just talk to your son or daughter in private? How do you mm -hmm. handle that? How do you, you know, what's your feeling on that? Yeah, that's a great question, especially over age 14, right? Um, I think it's huge to be able to have the child in the room without the parent. We also don't know, you know, what kind of trauma history is there. And perhaps there is some sort of trauma they, they don't want to disclose or child abuse that wouldn't be disclosed with a parent in the room. And so the only way to really get at that is, Mom, I just need a few minutes, you know. Okay. I think it's, it's a great question and really important to encourage that. Um, that we just want to ask a few questions. And I'm always a little hesitant if a parent really puts up an argument, you know, I don't want you talking to my child without me there. Makes me wonder. Okay. Well, I think uh, a lot on. in our physician community would be interested in how to deal with that situation. Yeah. So I think they have to deal with that a lot. Absolutely. And I think it's great that they're starting to ask those questions. And, you know, like you said, some, some children will talk about it in front of the parents, but some won't. And we really need to get at you know, those kids who are kind of holding it all in. Sometimes it is easier to talk to, I don't, not a, your doctor's not a stranger, but someone that's not a, a direct caregiver. We, some children we find don't want to hurt their parent. You know, it's not that we want to keep a big secret, but I'm afraid it's going to upset my mom. Right. Because I know she cares so much about me, and I don't want to upset her. So it could be on that end, too.
it's easier to disclose to someone different. I know you have some questions for me. I sure do. Well, first, the high rate of suicide, similar to with children among physicians, is well documented, but there's still the stigma surrounding it. The stigma around mental health persists in the medical community. Why do you think that is, and how is PCOM training its future health practitioners to break that stigma? You know, it's amazing. We've been talking about this stigma for 35 years and how it still persists, you know, somehow the shield of invulnerability the physician must maintain. I really think that's coming down. And I think it's coming down at the medical student level because one of the main things we address is student mental health yeah. in the first and second year, you know, making people aware of the resources that are available to them, you know, group sessions for students. You know, we now have two full-time mental health counselors on campus here. We have a full-time sure. mental health counselor in, in Swanee. You know, we have a part-time in Moultrie, you know, to address students' needs. And I think if you indoctrinate them early, then the stigma is gone because it's just part of life. It is. I mean, and there, there's no stigma with it. And it's really, you know, getting people to be healthy and to address their mental health needs before they get to a point where they feel the only option is suicide. Yeah, absolutely. And that we best help our patients when we take care of ourselves as well. Correct. Yeah. You've talked before about the need for behavioral health to be an integral part of primary care. From your perspective as a physician, how do you see that approach benefiting those who may be at risk for harmful behavior? Well, I think the goal there is to see people before they take that step to harm themselves with either a, a suicidal attempt or suicidal ideations that, you know, we're treating the underlying depression, anxiety, whatever the mental health disorder is early on, you know, because a lot of mental health conditions are chronic. Right. So, you know, the earlier you identify them, the earlier you treat them, you avoid it. That's how you prevent suicides. I love that, especially since the research shows that once there's a suicide attempt, the risk for a, a second attempt is greater. Exactly, exactly. I think that's huge. And finally, you worked in an ER for several years. If you've ever encountered a patient who engaged in self-harm or attempted suicide, I'm curious how that shaped your view of patient care. You know, unfortunately, in the ER, you see people in the middle of their attempts. Yeah. They're usually in their overdose state, and a lot of times we're putting them on life support and you know, instituting uh, therapeutic treatment to treat their Suicide, the people that come in with suicide ideations or even just thoughts, those are the people where I really felt the system was not designed for them. They would sit for hours waiting, you know, for if it was a child psychiatrist, whoever was on call, to come into the ER. And that's when you, you realize, just like we need integrated behavioral health in a primary care office, you need behavioral health in the ER. Right you know, to immediately assess people, to get them triaged to, to the right places for the right care at the right time. Yeah, I love that. Working with children, they come back and report how scary it is to be waiting right. and seeing other patients who are Just adds to the trauma. Absolutely. You got it. So, so I love that perspective. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Erbacher. Uh, unfortunately, suicide is the second leading cause of death for youth ages 15 to 24 years old and the third leading cause of death for 10 to 14-year-olds. And these numbers, unfortunately, have been rising for nearly 20 years. There is no single cause of suicide. It's a conflation of several factors, but there are important signs to look for, 
and ways to help prevent it. It's important for physicians, healthcare providers, and behavioral health practitioners to partner to effectively address all of these factors holistically. To listen to past episodes of this podcast and become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page or find us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Jay Feldstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives.